welcome to episode 63. Sorry about that, Shane. I think I jumped the gun on the record button, but this is the actual astronomy podcast, your guide to observing moons of Earth and Mercury. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers that do astronomy just for the fun of it. And doing this podcast is how we share all the fun of astronomy that we like to do with you. Halloween was last night, Shane. Did you have a happy Halloween? Well, before we get into that, how many moons does Earth have? <laughs> that's a good question. And it seems like this is um, something that's up for debate in the media. We'll, we'll uh, get into that. Yes. In a we'll moment. get into that. All right. All yeah. Right. We'll Halloween. So did you have a happy Halloween? Yeah. Uh, not how really. Was, well, it? it was it wasn't a bad Halloween. It was a normal yeah. Halloween for us. So yeah. we don't really do Halloween, and it's not because we don't like Halloween. Uh, we have a little dog that loses her mind every time the doorbell rings, and she thinks that everybody mm -hmm. that comes to the house comes to see her. So then you know she's got to run to the door and get petted, and and it just yeah. turns into a disaster on Halloween night. So we usually you know, kind of hunker down in the basement and watch TV in, in darkness and, and skip it in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the first year we've got a valid excuse to do that, you know, because of the, the worldwide <laughs> pandemic. Um, yeah. You know, there's not a lot going on. So, so yeah, we did our usual low key Halloween and um, I did take my telescope out for a short Mars okay. view Yeah, and a uh, very, very short moon view of that mm -hmm. special moon last night mm -hmm. yeah how was your halloween yeah it was good i i love halloween i i think it, out of all the um sort of uh you know holidays throughout the year it's it's among my favorites um you know when i was a kid i used to love dressing up um and i, I always used to pick like a costume that would really and and like looking back i can kind of see why i i would pick a costume that really concerned um, the educators in, in the public school system that I attended. Um, I remember when I was in grade five, I dressed up as the guy from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, mm -hmm. I thought that was funny. I thought it was funny. Maybe my humor is a little bit ahead of the curve on it, but I get, but I guess when like a, a very young child shows up wielding a chainsaw, this, this is generally frowned upon in, you know, in the elementary <laughs> school system. Um, uh, but, but I liked it. I got the joke. I got the joke. They didn't, they took my chainsaw away and would only give it to me um, during the, the photographic shoot. Um, but yeah, last night we, we put a big uh, sort of bowl out that I refreshed from time to time. I really miss seeing the kids. I like to hand out the, the, you know, the, the treats to the kids and um, you know, my wife and I always take turns and uh, you know, it's a lot of fun to see like the different kids uh, in the, in the neighborhood. And we also live in an area with a lot of um, people that are new to Canada as well. And um, just, uh, you know, in, in the past, I, I've known lots of people that have moved to Canada and just um, hearing about their experiences of uh, experiencing Halloween, like in Saskatchewan for the first time, it is a little bit different here than it is where I'm from, too. So um, people here are way more chill about Halloween. Um, and it's it is more fun in Saskatchewan. So where I'm from, there's like an element of, uh, well, there, there's there, there can be some challenges. Um, so, for example, if you leave your pumpkin out past midnight, uh, people will come around and smash it on the street in front of your house. Like I'm in my town, that was oh wow. Oh yeah, like that. Like if you <laughs> left it out, that just happened. 
Um, and like you kind of, that's what you got coming to you. So people would just drive around smashing pumpkins all night. And just, <laughs> that's where the band name, I think got its band name from. I think that's pretty common. Oh, they they originate from the East coast. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Um, but here, you know, like I walked around this morning, no smashed up pumpkins, which I'm always like, that's so weird. There's not smashed up pumpkins everywhere. Um, and the other thing is like, I put a bowl out and I said, just take one candy and I put all kinds of candy out. Well, I think people only ever took one candy. Like I kept thinking, like if this was where I grew up, you would like, I broke up the candy into like thirds and I'm like, okay, I'll put a third of it out and then I'll go back and put another third of it out every, you know, sort of I, I figure Halloween lasts about three or four hours. So I kind of broke up the evening, but I'd go out and there was always like eight or 10 candies left. And, you know, maybe people took more than one. I actually don't think they took more than one. Put a little science and happy Halloween, just take one. And I think people only ever took one. I'm like, this is really street. People are so polite here, you know, like no smashed pumpkins. You know, there was candy left over. You know, it was really, really surprising. I think next year I'm going to give out like a, like a, I don't know, a flat of pop. You can either have a pop or an apple or take one of each or something like that. Cause yeah, it's pretty surprising. Only had about 30 or 40 kids come to the door, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I miss seeing seeing people uh, dressed up and, and kind of relaying their, their experiences. Um, anyway, but uh, it is what it is. Um, but, you know, Halloween, it's one of those holidays that's synonymous with the moon, uh, I guess because the moon is, is meant to be eerie. But did you know that Halloween is really an astronomical holiday? I did not know this, no. So this, mm. is, this is something I've known for, for some time now. Um, I've actually, I think I first found out about it listening to the 365 days of astronomy. I think somebody had done a podcast, uh, in 2009, that, that first year or around that time and, and talked about these or made reference to them. And that's the, uh, the cross quarter days. And so these are kind of like the midpoints or not kind of, they, they are very much the midpoints between, um, the solstices and, uh, the equinoxes, or in this case, between like the autumnal, uh, equinox and the winter solstice. So that point, um, it actually lands on about the first week of November, um, but the, the holiday is, is celebrated just before. And, and so this, this is a holiday that's been uh, sort of carried forward uh, from, from the Druids and that, that holiday now is, is Halloween. And then we have a few others uh, throughout the year. Uh, we have Groundhog Day, which is on or about uh, the 2nd of, uh, well, it's the 2nd of February, but it's again, just a few days before that, uh, that midpoint between the winter solstice and the spring equinox. And then we have May Day, which is uh, sort of midpoint between the spring equinox uh, and the summer solstice. And then uh, around August 1st, there's, there's another one in, in different places, they call it different things. Um, but typically you do have a holiday in there now. I think they have one here in Saskatchewan. I forget the name where I'm from. It's called Natal Day. I know they celebrate it as, as other things. But anyway, Earth, Earth and Sky, uh, that's a website, earthandsky.org. They have a, have a really good article on it uh, this year. I, I looked it up so I could give people a reference, but uh, it's sort of something I, I was thinking about. So anyway, there's a little bit of a, an educational thing on why we have Halloween and you can celebrate it as an astronomical holiday and you know, uh, the year after next, book it off from work. Well, now we know. <laughs> now you know. Now you know. So Shane, you were saying you looked at the moon last night. Do you know what two full moons in a month, you know what that second full moon is called? Well, that's a blue moon, Chris. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> so sure it is. I'm not so sure it is. So No, no, but that's often the billing that it gets. Um, that certainly is. within the media, right? It, it's known 
often or referred to as often as a blue moon. But tell us more about this, Chris. Yeah, so so I, I can I can see like you you've been reading my notes just with the uh, <clears throat> with the attitude you're giving me, but I've got a bit of a <laughs> I've got a bit of a celestial axe to grind of sorts uh, on this one because. Um, I was listening to the radio on, on Friday evening and there was, you know, on different channels, they, they people on and by different channels, I'm like flipping through my Google assistant. That's how I listen to my radio. I'm not like there with an old timey radio or anything. Uh, people were calling it uh, the blue moon, the micro blue moon, um, calling it all, all kinds of different things. Uh, and I, I suppose that's because the full moon uh, on October 31st uh, was a perigeal moon. So it's at perigee, meaning it's at the furthest point in its orbit while it's full. Um, and then we've also seen recently they're, they're calling, uh, the full moons, which occur at Apogee, um, as, as the, uh, as the super moons, or maybe I have that, that reverse, but anyway, one of them's the super moon and one of them's the micro moon. Um, so, you know, it's always great when people get excited about looking up at the night sky and you and I like to do public outreach and, you know, it's great. People get excited about the night sky and then, you know, they, they go out and look, they have questions and, we can really help them all along their journey of getting interested in astronomy or they can seek out their own, their own sources or whatever. So uh, my problem is, is that when people go out to see these kind of events, there's really nothing to see. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that that creates a little bit of a challenge because oftentimes people are, are going out and whatever they look at, they're going to kind of misconstrue that um, as an observation. So in, in the case of, of the super moons, um, and the micromoons, you know, I'm somebody who over the past four or five years uh, has been sketching the moon naked eye, in particular the full moon naked eye, because I think that that's about all you can do with it. Now, this super micromoon is based entirely on astrological hokum. So right away, we've got a problem because it's not even based on the science of astronomy. It's just based on uh, some sort of astrological basis. And so, uh, you know, when, when the moon is, is near, it's at apogee. Um, I think before I said it's at perigee, but, but that's the problem actually with this. That's like a good example is when you're trying to sort it out and we're giving it all these other weird names and they're trying to do all this other strange stuff with it, it even for us who do this and, and explain this all the time, it starts to get confused, right? So it's when the moon is at uh, apogee that it's at its closest and when the, the moon is far away that it's at perigee and that's the farthest. The close moon is uh, typ- typically called the, uh, the, uh, the apogee moon and that's uh, when it's gonna be largest in the sky and the perigeal moon is when it's furthest away. Um, but, you know, but by simply giving it these, these other names you, you lose that, right? And it can kind of become a little bit confusing. Even here in this podcast, I got a little bit confused for a second as we do this live and we don't edit it. I'm happy to leave that in. Um, and then typically what people are seeing when they, when they go to look at the supermoon is the horizon effect, which is actually a really interesting effect. What would be more interesting is tell people to go out and look at the moon when it's at the horizon, then later on come out a few hours later, look at it when it's overhead, and you'll see that it's actually smaller. But instead, I think people often, because I get lots of questions about this in my class and I hear them in the media and people talking about it, it gets all jumbled up, is people go out and take a look at the supermoon, it happens to be on the horizon, just because of sort of this astrological basis, people are saying, well, go out and look at it when it's rising, you'll see how big it is. And people do that, the moon is always going to appear bigger because of the horizon effect, which is an illusion. 
And then when they when they tell people to go out and look at the micro moon, they're telling them to go out and look at it around like, you know, who knows what, like 1030 or midnight or something when it's high up overhead, you're going to see it smaller and it's going to sort of artificially be smaller. But actually seeing the difference between a micro and a super moon be very difficult. Like the difference in size between those two is only 14%. And considering most people are going to be more used to seeing like an average size moon, that difference is 7%. So really, unless you you had both the moons in the same sky at the same time, and again, this, this makes it sound, this is sort of where I started the conversation by talking about the many moons of the earth, because that's kind of almost the impression they're giving. Like that would be like the next thing is to say, well, actually earth has many moons, right? You know, which isn't true at all. There's just, there's just one moon and it kind of uh, goes back and forth and, and we get a slightly different size. Can you see that? So I think that I can probably detect with, with a trained eye, having done this for four or five years now, on top of all the other astronomy that I do, I can probably detect about a 10% difference in size. So the average difference being 7%, I think the difference between a micro or a super moon compared to the average distant moon um, being only 7% is not something detectable by the human eye. Could you detect the difference between a super and micro moon um, if they were side by side in the sky? I think so. But in sketching it, I, I think I can say maybe kind of sort of I can, I can have seen the difference, but uh, I think it's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, for sure. The, the only time I've noticed the difference is in photographs when people present, you know, uh, with, with keeping all the variables constant within like the photographic stream. And then they take a photo of the supermoon and a normal yeah. moon and a micro moon. Sure, there's a difference. Small difference. As long as they're the using the same exposure and everything like I had. It, yeah, exactly. All those variables have to remain yeah. the same. Yeah. Um, there's even a, there's on the a same difference. Yeah. Even on the same night, I've had students. Uh, just over a week ago, they went out and, and two different students took a photo at almost exactly the same moment in time to get a shot of the moon and, and Jupiter and Saturn. See, and that was an event. And this is kind of the sad bit. That was an event. We had uh, the moon right beside uh, Mars uh, on Thursday night. That, that is an event because then people can ID Mars in the nighttime sky. That's a significant thing for people that have never seen um, Mars before and found it themselves. Um, so then when people are going nuts about a, a, a full moon, basically, which is super easy to find, not really that much of an event. Uh, I feel like it's, it's definitely an opportunity wasted. Uh, and then the blue moons. Yeah. You know, regarding the blue moons as a second full moon of the month, this is a mistake. Um, and it was created, unfortunately, by Sky and Telescope magazine. And what's cool, though, is because Sky and Telescope is a very reputable magazine, it's uh, probably, you know, it's my favorite astronomy magazine, probably your favorite astronomy magazine. Um, and so they've actually published on their website, free to all, a history of this problem of the blue moons and their, their part in it. And it comes down to a 1946 article that referenced the 1937 Farmer's Almanac, which described the fourth full moon in a season as a blue moon. And coincidentally, I think the way that it happened, although it's a little bit difficult to tell in the article, um, I think what happened is that second full moon uh, or that fourth full moon fell as the second moon in a month, just like coincidentally. Mm -hmm. And so it was misinterpreted or somehow it was misinterpreted as two full moons in a month in future articles. And so they published future articles. Now, Sky and Telescope, although it's widely read by astronomy geeks like us, it's not that widely read. But when Trivial Pursuit put out their 1986 edition, which was hugely popular, 
for those of us that were, although I wasn't playing it, I was a little bit too, too young for Trivial Pursuit at that time. Um, when they put out the 1986 version of Trivial Pursuit, they used that as, a, uh, as an answer to one of the questions. And it became super popular after that. And so it ended up, you know, really in my mind becoming uh, another cautionary tale of using uh, something with an astrological base, like the farmer's almanac tends towards more astrological things in nature than of scientific nature. And, uh, and you know, although it probably seemed pretty harmless in 1946, and, and you see this game with the super micro moons, you're kind of mixing or trying to mix the astronomy with the astrology. That's problematic. And that's, that's where we got into this business of uh, two, uh, two moons in the same month and the second one being called a blue moon. And the general um, definition of something that's rare is like a blue moon. And in fact, these are not, uh, not all that rare at all occurring, um, at least, you know, more or less on an annual basis or a biannual basis. That's really not that rare, astronomically speaking. And then uh, it, it's really nothing that you can see. So it, it really isn't that rare. And it's nothing that you can, you can actually really uh, see. Neither, neither can you really see the, uh, the micro or the supermoon compared to a, a just average distant moon. So anyway, that's sort of my, uh, my rant because I, I think that opportunities are missed in, uh, in people enjoying the nighttime sky. For example, this blue moon the other night, um, Really, it would have been nice if, if the media had given more attention to the opposition of Mars. I never heard hardly anything on the opposition of Mars or, or opportunities to see the other planets as the moon was skirting by them. Um, but you throw in blue moon because it really catches people's attention that this is a rare event and that, um, you know, talking about a blue moon in itself, this must be exceptionally rare because this is the pure definition of rarity in itself in common vernacular. No. This is not, this is just a, a mistake mixing astrology with astronomy, unfortunately. So that's my rant. Not sure what you think about that. I feel like I should be like the, the Rick Mercer of the show now. <laughs> no, good rant. I wholeheartedly agree. It does frustrate me that, you know, blue moon, well, and more so the super moon, I think has become sort of a clickbaity type of headline. Yeah. Um, and it's a shame because like you said, there really isn't anything to see. No. And there's far, just about any time of the year, there's usually far greater and far more interesting things that could be an astronomical headline uh, yeah. to bring awareness to people, you know, like you just said, to go take a look at Mars, because this is a really yeah. favorable opposition. Um, so it yeah. is too bad. Um, but, you know, I think it's also good that we have some short rants or conversations about sure. this to uh, bring some awareness. Um, and, you know, I think people that are listening to our podcast are probably well aware of this stuff anyway. Yeah. And uh, hopefully I've had some good views of Mars and Jupiter and Saturn earlier this year. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll continue to highlight the other stuff. <laughs> so highlighting the other stuff and stuff yeah. that you can actually see, which is somewhat rare or at least as rare or more rare than a blue moon. <laughs> so you can yes. see it and it's uh, and it's a rare event. This is, uh, a good opportunity to take a look at Mercury coming up. Shane, the Mercury was dropping. We've been as low as minus 23C here over the past few weeks. Um, but I hear the Mercury will be rising this coming week. <laughs> yes, the, the Mercury in our thermometers and the Mercury in the sky will be That's rising. Right. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. I'm excited for this episode, Chris. Mercury 
admittedly for me is probably one of my most ignored objects in the sky. I just mm-hmm. don't spend any time chasing this down. I don't spend any time looking at it and even less time kind of learning about Mercury or, mm-hmm. you know, how to even observe it. So this is uh, this is an episode that I've been looking forward to for a while. Yeah. Um, you know, it's going to go to 16 degrees Celsius. So our Mercury is rising. We haven't seen 16 C in a good five weeks now, I think. So looking forward to that. And then uh, we have Mercury, uh, really, it, it gets uh, observable on or about the 5th. I think this will come out about the 5th. So starting in the early mornings of the 6th, which will be the first morning uh, after you've heard this podcast for those who get it right away. Um, but then following for about the next week or 10 days, um, you're going to have a good opportunity to get up in the morning sky and take a look. We'll, we'll talk about more and where to see it. Um, but seeing Mercury can be a bit of a challenge. Um one of the things they've often said in the past uh, is that um, Polish astronomer uh, Copernicus never saw Mercury. Now, there's some debate on this. I was reading an, an article from 1892 in the Observatory, which is, I think it was a journal or, or some sort of magazine. And the article mentioned that uh, perhaps Copernicus did see it, but what he talked about or what he might have been remarking about is just simply the unfavorable uh, conditions in Poland. Like he lived near a large river, the, I'm going to say this probably wrong, but the uh, Vestula, I have a couple of really good friends from Poland. I thought I should just send them an email and say, how do I say this? Um, And he had moved there from Rome. In Rome, I think Mercury would be pretty easy to see. Um, So they think, at least in that article in 1892, they were were saying that, uh, that he probably did see it. He probably just didn't see it from Poland. He probably saw it uh, during some of his other uh, uh, observations in, in other parts of, of Europe. So yeah, some of those old records, where does Mercury have to decipher some of that stuff and, you know, try to make sense of it all, I guess. Yeah. It seems a bit of a stretch. It seems because yeah. you have seen Mercury before, haven't you? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I have. So um, I think the first time actually was from uh, the Caribbean and uh, it was right. It was near sunrise and, and Mercury and Venus were well positioned. It was uh, just a neat naked eye view. Yeah. And I would say that you're probably about on par with Nicholas Copernicus. So uh, if you can see it, he probably did too. There we go. <laughs> Proven. <laughs> myth busted. <laughs> so what myth busted. So, uh, so tell us a little bit about Mercury, Shane. Well, it's the closest planet to the sun. Um, and also the smallest planet. It is not much bigger than our moon. So it's about 3,000 miles in diameter. Um, And it's just a little bit farther than the distance across the entire continental US. Um, But about 1,000 miles smaller than continental Canada. So interesting. Yeah, I I just had to put that in. (laughs) (laughs) Always got a one up. <laughs> we have a lot of you. Yeah, we're just a little bit fatter. <laughs> you know, exactly. <laughs> All right. So uh, it's a it's a terrestrial planet too. So that means there's no uh, plate tectonics and that sort of thing. Yeah. But how long? How long is the is the orbit? Do you know about the orbit? Uh no, I don't know much about the orbit. Um, why don't you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah, it's got a strange orbit. It's 88 days 
means it goes around the sun really quick, goes around the sun at about 100,000 miles per hour. And uh, therefore, one of the reasons why it's named Mercury is Mercury was the Greek uh, messenger of the gods. And, uh, and so, you know, something that moves that quick and makes a brief appearance in the sky and then whoosh, it's gone again. There, we'll call that one Mercury. And it only ever gets about 28 degrees or about uh, three fist lengths away from the sun, coincidentally, but the same distance from the bowl of the Big Dipper to Polaris. So that's like sort of a good uh, reference point. Now, this is the this is kind of the tricky part. I'm not going to get too into this because uh, this could be like a whole podcast in itself about the business of the spin orbit resonance. But it goes around the sun. For every three times it goes around the sun, Okay, it spins twice on its axis. Okay, Mm -hmm. so that means that it's rotating slower on its axis than its orbit is around the sun. I'm not going to go into that. Some people I was watching a Phil Plate video last night to see if I want to explain this. And even like Phil Plate, who does bad astronomy and well-known public outreach educator of astronomy, even even his explanation was kind of like, I'm not sure if I get it, right? So I'm not going to try to get into that. But um, what happened though, because of this strange uh, 3-2 spin orbit resonance, um, it was very difficult for early astronomers to determine um, if the same face was always facing the sun and, and uh, you know, therefore the backside or, or the side side always facing uh, the same part to earth and you know what it would be like if if the planet was like that but it just turns out that um a lot of the time we do get the same face some of the time we don't um and it's very difficult to to see the face uh of mercury from earth anyway but um its orbital eccentricity though is the greatest of all the planets in the solar system so at, at perihelion mercury's uh, distance from the sun uh, is only about two thirds of its distance at aphelion. And Mercury's surface appears heavily cratered. And it's very similar to the moon. And this is the thing I, I always uh, like to do. And, and, you know, we're not a visual podcast, but I always like to put up a, a graphic of Mercury and say, you know, at the start, before I do anything else with Mercury, and I, I say, what's this? And everybody in the class says, that's the moon. And I'm like, no, it's Mercury. It looks pretty much just like the moon and it's not a whole lot bigger than the moon. I think I put a graphic in here for you and there's, there's a shot of the, the earth and then you can see Mercury and then the moon. And it's really just a scooch bigger. It's probably about as, as much bigger. Anyway, it's, it's like about another thousand miles, I think bigger than, than the moon or something like that. Uh, and it gets really hot there and there's no atmosphere. Yeah. The, the surface the, looks just like the moon's covered in craters. Yep. The, the comparison to the moon is, is so apt. Like it, it, if you're not, even if you are familiar with what the moon looks like, the, they're so similar in shading and color and, and sort of pock marks mm. from all of the impacts. Um, it's, it's pretty stunning. Yeah. Yeah. And it even like how the moon contracted, I mean, Mercury has contracted even more. Um, it, it's just got a little bit more of the same. You know, it's slightly larger. The planes are slightly larger. It has slightly more contraction, has a couple of really big impact craters. Um, let's see, there is a big uh, impact crater called the Caloris Basin um, that, that, you know, it, there was a big impactor around, you know, there was a lot of impacts during the, uh, the early formation 4.6 and then during the late heavy bombardment, which is 3.8 billion years ago. 
Um, and that's when the Kelleris Basin was formed. Something hit it and all the magma welled up and it produced this large smooth marae, which is like a big, basically a lake of lava and then it's solidified. And this is just very similar to, to the ones uh, like we see, see on the moon there. It was just pummeled with comets and asteroids and meteors for, for a long time. It has, like, like you said, a lot of those same moon-like highlands, mountains, plains, escarpments, um, you know, which are caused by the shrinking core. And uh, and valleys, you know, it's it's very very similar. Yeah. So in the notes, too... I, I put up. Uh... Go ahead. Uh, it just I was going to say it's too bad that um, we we can't that, that it's not closer for us to actually observe it because there would be so much detail to see similar to the moon if it was actually closer to us. Yeah. And speaking of detail, so I've kind of scrolled down on my page, but I, I've got these two uh, graphics on the one on the left is uh, Percival Lowell's. Uh, I think it's a, uh, let's see, 1896. So the 1896 or 1892, I think it's 1896 uh, drawing of Mercury. And you can see all these like lines and shading almost looks like just a patchwork of, of canals really. Uh, very maybe reminiscent of uh, of what he was seeing on on uh, Mars even, and then uh, to the right I put uh, Antoniadi's uh, 1920 sketch, uh, which is which is much better and it shows like uh, the general shading and and patchiness, um, and these are just like the albedo features. And I, I did read that uh, I've got a good book. There's a really good book on observing Mercury by. Uh, Peter Grago called, uh, I think it's just called uh, Venus and Mercury and how to observe them or something like that. Um, but it's great, great text. Um, and he talks about the fact that with a hundred millimeter telescope at a hundred power, you can see some of the different shadings on Mercury. Although I've, I've yet to be able to, to do that. I kind of hope to do that maybe in the, in the coming week. Um, and that at, at around about hundred power too, you might be able to pick up the odd crater like if there's a big crater on the uh, on the Terminator, because the uh, the planet Mercury, like the planet Venus, uh, these are inferior planets because they're on the inside of Earth's orbit. So just like the Moon, when we see it at a partial phase, we also see these planets at partial phases. Now with Venus, it's got clouds, so uh, you're not going to see any kind of craters or anything like that. We can see some cloud detail from time to time. Uh, but with Mercury, you are seeing the actual surface, and it is uh, it is very heavily cratered. And I think I think in Grago's book, he also shows it's neat. He shows an image of the Moon, our Moon, our singular Moon, naked eye, with the albedo features, like you can see the lava plains and the highlands, the, the bright and dark features that that everybody's familiar with. And then he shows like Mercury through the telescope, and it's very, in many ways, very similar to observing Mars except of course it doesn't get very, very high above, uh, above the horizon. So that's kind of neat. Hmm. Yeah, that is very interesting. I, you know, the, again, like me not spending much time even thinking about Mercury. Um, it's, it's great to hear that there's some surface features that should be able to be observed through a telescope. Um, now, hundred millimeters is not modest aperture, you know, that's starting to become a sizable refractor, but it's certainly, uh, well within the means of astro or amateur astronomers. And um, yeah, I'm excited to hear what you're able to see. And uh, if I decide to wake up in the morning, maybe what I am able to see. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this, you know, and, and I know it, it seems kind of 
nutty in a way that I, that I own like 60 millimeter and 80 millimeter and five inch telescopes, 125 millimeter. And then I went this year and bought the hundred millimeter. The reason for the hundred millimeter, one of the reasons is to observe mercury. And there's a very good reason why Peter Greger refers to the hundred millimeter telescope very specifically. And that is that a four inch or a hundred millimeter telescope gives you about the maximum resolution that the sky will allow at most times while being minimally impacted um, by any uh, atmospheric detrimental seeing. And so typically the, the four inch or hundred millimeter telescope is gonna perform about as well or better than any smaller instrument. And then hmm. also it's gonna be less impacted by our atmospheric seeing than a larger instrument. So because mercury is so close to the horizon all the time, you're really looking for any advantage you can get. This is hair splitting in most other situations. But when it comes to mercury, it's going to be the difference between seeing a crater and not, apparently. So having not done it yet, we'll see. Um, but uh, I think I'm well set up for it with the, with the 100 millimeter now, with a tracking mount that I can track into daylight and with uh, really good low element uh, planetary eyepieces. So just sort of building on um, the relationship or, or the, I guess the co-relationship or the similarities between the moon and Mercury, there's also been uh, water ice discovered at the North Pole of, of Mercury in the craters, just like on our moon. Uh, I think that it was Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter went around and, uh, and made discoveries uh, of our moon ice in the deep craters. The same thing has been discovered with Mercury. So where to find Mercury in the nighttime sky? We referenced this very briefly when we did our objects to observe in the nighttime sky back in, uh, in the early part of the month. Um, but Mercury emerges into the morning sky and it's going to be best on or about the 10th of November. So this podcast, I think, is coming out about the 5th of November. The 5th is probably the very first day that you could see it well uh, mm -hmm. above due east. And, uh, and it's, it's going to, you know, get back into that roughly same position by about the 15th or 16th. So you got a good solid 10 days and hopefully there'll be a really good morning in there. It's probably worthwhile getting up every one of those mornings. You need to have a really good view to the east though. If you don't have a good view to the east, you're probably going to struggle to see it. And, uh, it's going to be in Virgo, uh, and that's on the horizon and you're going to have Venus uh, to the upper right, but you're probably going to want to start with Venus. So you'll be able to see Venus early if you went out at, say, 5.30 or quarter to six. You'll see Venus um, just south of east. So it's about halfway between east and southeast in the sky. And it's going to be up maybe, um, I guess, about 20 or 25 degrees. That's Venus. And then about 10 degrees or so below Venus, you have Spica. And then about another maybe six or seven degrees to the left, you're going to have Mercury. So it is it is fairly low. It's going to start out uh, on the fifth, only about maybe seven or eight degrees above the horizon. So not even quite a fist above the horizon. But by the time we get to the 10th or so, it's really going to be about two fists above the horizon um, while it's getting while the sky is getting brighter. So it might be a bit of a challenge. And sometimes like it all depends like sometimes the atmosphere can be such that you just can't see it. And then sometimes, you know, it can just sort of blend into the background um, and, and just be really difficult to see. So there's times like this where 
I think this might be a good, a good round, a good opposition to see it. It's hard to say until we get out there and do it. But if I don't say, then, then nobody will take the opportunity to go out and try to see it. Um, but sometimes it's super easy to see. Sometimes you can just, I can just stand up in my uh, window and look out and there's, there's mercury and I can see it. No problem at all. So it, it kind of depends, but I'm going to say this, it only gets about 19 or 20 degrees away from the sun uh, at its farthest this time. So uh, be very careful. Don't be observing after sunrise because uh, being only about two fists away from the sun uh, means that uh, it would be pretty easy to accidentally like nudge your telescope and get uh, the sun in your telescope and never look at the sun through a telescope unless you're an experienced amateur astronomer that knows how to do that. So there is, um, you know, a bit of a risk if you're observing anything that's even remotely close to the sun. So figure out whatever time sunrise is for you. And uh, that's going to be the end, end of your observing. Uh, sort of towards the end of my notes here, Shane, and I'm not sure what our, what our time is like, but um, I've put a sketch by Paul Abel, um, who's a, a UK-based uh, amateur astronomer. And uh, I don't feel bad kind of sharing this um, because <laughs> I bought his book um, and I recommend people to buy Paul Abel's book on, on observing and sketching uh, the planets. It's an excellent book. And you can kind of see he's using uh, in, this, in this sketch, he's using, I think, a reflector of about uh, 12 inches. And you can actually see like some of those sort of dusky kind of markings on the surface. And it does almost look like maybe what you'd see of the moon through heavy cloud or something like that, even though there's, you know, no cloud on, on Mercury. I don't know what you think about that sketch. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting sketch. Now, what I'll say is that a 12 inch reflector is a very large telescope. It looks like he was using 250 mm. times magnification so that's you quite a bit as well. Good seeing. Yeah. Must have had good seeing. And even with all of that being said, what I'm seeing in this sketch is a, uh, you know, sort of a white creamish, creamyish uh, sort of surface with some real subtle shading. So for anybody that's mm -hmm. going out to try to, you know, see some surface detail on Mercury, just, just be aware of that, that you, you may not see any of that unless you have a very large telescope. Um, and even then, and like the, you know, I, I assume, um, you know, you need a, like a new observer may not even see it with a large telescope, just because some of these types of subtle, um, you know, contrasts here, sometimes that just requires a little more experience to be able to tease that in with your eye. Um, but anyways, mm -hmm. it's interesting. Get, even just to get the focus. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that that's even, you know, possible. So that's pretty cool. Um, maybe one other note that I'll say too, is that, uh, while Mercury and Venus are in the sky at about the same time, understand that Venus is substantially brighter. So, you know, while Venus is a good sort of marker to get you into the right area of the sky, you're looking for something that's quite a bit dimmer for, you know, when you're trying to find Mercury, um, and, and, you know, at 10 degrees off the horizon, again, just extend your fist out to know how low that really is. And you really do need an unobstructed view in order to, to pull that in. Yeah. And you made some good points there. Like, yeah, it, it is going to be fainter. So I think it gets about as bright as, as uh, 0 0.5 magnitude. Oh yeah. So that, yeah, good. that definitely is, uh, is yeah. So it's not, it's, it's fainter than the mercury and fainter than Mars. Uh, but it's sort of like the next step down. So uh, if you can see um, how bright Venus is, um, then it, 
it's going to be significantly uh, dimmer than that. Um, but it, a zero magnitude star, 10 degrees above the horizon, that, that definitely is uh, quite observable. So I guess maybe there's, there's three um, ways you can observe this. So probably the first way is naked eye without anything. And that's just going to be to try to pull it out of the twilight. Um, and that could be a bit of a challenge. Now, if you have binoculars, that's really going to cinch the deal. If you look um, south, south, or sorry, east, southeast, then um, 10 degrees above the horizon, um, and you're kind of going about maybe 15, just, just below and to the left, or just um, southeast of Venus. With your binoculars, you're going to be able to see it pretty easily, I think. Um, so that would be sort of, you know, sort of step one in observing. And that's what I've typically done in the past and consider that uh, actually a bit of a challenge. And you do that, you should feel pretty good about your observation. The second is to see the phases through the telescope. So if you do have a telescope and you can get it on Mercury, um, it is going to be a challenge because it's, it's low. So you're going to have a lot of atmospheric turbulence and you might not see it the first time, but um, just to see the phase. So it's going to be sort of a bit of a gibbous phase. And, uh, and it's going to uh, have a phase that changes even day to day a little bit, maybe even a little bit faster than the moon because it, it goes around uh, the sun so quick. But yeah, you're definitely going to notice a difference in the phases over the course of those uh, 10 or 12 days it's visible. Um, so that would be the next thing. And then seeing the surface detail is sort of like the cherry on the cake. And I, I probably would say my, my chances of success at doing this are probably like 5% or something like that. So I'm going into this with, with a little bit of a, a reality check. So, yeah. Anyway, may, maybe that's a better way to explain it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a, a great, a great way to maybe cap that off. Um, it, it's a great challenge observation to attempt. Don't get frustrated if you're not successful. Um, there's a lot of factors working against anybody trying to observe Mercury just due to how low it is in the horizon. Uh, but, you know, the only mm -hmm. way to uh, to try is to get out there. And, and kind of the interesting thing is with a short window of, of you know, just over, or, you know, well, probably just under two weeks is um, is just that, that there's not a lot of days to observe. So get out there as much as you can and uh, see what you can do. Yeah, it always seems like we do have a few uh, opportunities, to, usually two uh, good opportunities every year to take a look. I think that's just our last one. Uh, well, it will be a last one this year in the morning sky anyway. Um, and then towards the end of the year, I think we'll get it in, in the evening sky for a bit. Um, that one, that one could be maybe a little bit better for us. We'll, we'll just have to wait, wait and see. Yeah. Well, that's sort of my bit on Mercury. Shane, I'm not sure if you have anything to add. We've covered a fair bit of detail between, uh, the, the different moons of the earth, which are sort of astrological hokum and, uh, and what you can actually see with Mercury being, uh, being an actual observational event. So anything to add to this, uh, our 63rd podcast? Nothing to add, sir. That covers it off. And good luck for, well, to you when your Mercury observations and yeah. uh, good luck Thanks. to any of our listeners that try. I would be, the, I would love to hear from any listeners that try and just uh, send us your observing notes. I, I would love to, to hear about your attempts and if you were successful in seeing any surface features. And even if you were unsuccessful, I'd still love to hear about the observation. Think you'll try to see it, Shane? Or you're not, you're not one for it. You, this is 630 in the morning. So you should be able to walk around the corner from your house. If you, if you got a field somewhere near you there, you'd be able to yeah. maybe pull it out with binoculars. 
I, I might give it a try. I, I would definitely have to get in my vehicle and uh, go for a drive because nowhere near me do I have like an unobstructed view uh, of the horizon to the east. So yeah, um, a little bit of effort, a little more effort required for me to uh, do this. Um, but I, I'm on vacation next week. So, you know, no excuses for me. I guess. Ooh. Good stuff. All right. Well, Shane, how can people stay in touch with us? Uh, you can find us on Twitter. We are at actual astronomy. People can email us. We are actual astronomy at gmail.com and you can leave feedback on any of the podcasting apps. So there we go. All right. Thanks Shane. Thanks Chris. And thank you to everybody for listening.